the healthcare system is structured to make the physician's life easier. It's not really meant to make the patient's life easier to serve the patients. There's a lot of stuff that we can do that is much more patient-focused than what we're doing right now in healthcare. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Huang on the show. Dr. Huang received his Bachelor of Science and Master of Engineering degrees from MIT. He then went on to Harvard Medical School, where he received his MD and also MBA. Subsequently after that, he trained in orthopedic surgery as part of the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program. He then followed that up with a spine fellowship at New England Baptist, where he currently practices. In addition to being a minimally invasive spine surgeon, Dr. Huang is also very involved in healthcare technology, including serving as medical director at Hinge Health, a rapidly growing hot startup, and also part of OSVR's scientific advisory board. So we're very lucky to have Dr. Huang on the show today. Raymond, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Justin. It's uh, great to speak with you today. So much I want to dive into. You've had such an incredible career and you're involved in so many areas now that I am super interested in. And I think a lot of physicians are interested in as more and more healthcare professionals and people who are working in industry are looking to get more involved in technology and try and understand all the rapid change that's happening around us in today's rather tumultuous world. But before we get to that, I'd really just like to start from the beginning because you have a really interesting career path. And I'm curious, as you're applying for colleges and, and heading over to MIT, were you interested in healthcare from the get-go? Were you interested in engineering and, and science? How did that all come to pass? Yeah, I, I think my path, especially early on, was not well-defined. I really had no exposure to medicine or healthcare when I was younger. I was fortunate to be a healthy kid. Both my parents were engineers by training. They both went on to be entrepreneurs with their own separate enterprises. I kind of grew up in this nerdy business environment, and I think that's where I had the seed of innovation and technology planted. Medicine was really never on my radar. I went to MIT to study electrical engineering, computer science. I grew up during the age of the dawn of the personal computer, and both my parents, their businesses were kind of in the electronic materials and computer space. So I got a lot of deep exposure to that stuff growing up, and it just kind of made sense for me. I went there to study computers, basically. But as part of my undergrad and graduate work, I took a few biomedical classes and started getting interested in the application of engineering and technology within medicine. The idea of going to medical school and and being a doctor was through my master's degree. I did a master's in image processing and through that coursework, I got exposed to medical imaging. I started thinking about you know, what kinds of problems, what kinds of things would I want to work on in the future, and what's a really complex system that's challenging for imaging. And clearly, medical imaging, you know, the human body is something that seemed like it was a really nice intersection between medicine and what I was doing with my image processing. So I thought maybe I'd be a radiologist. And that was my original motivation for applying to med school. Did you apply straight out of your master's program, or did you take some time off? I went straight in. I took all of the courses that I initially opted out of because I thought I was definitely not going to go into medicine, but I had to take all the prerequisites and the MCATs and all that stuff. How did your family feel about that? Were they pretty excited? 
you know, I think they were surprised. You know, they didn't ever think I would have an interest in healthcare. I certainly didn't voice or suggest that I would when I was growing up. I think they always thought I would just follow in their footsteps, be an engineer, maybe start a business someday. But one of the principles I always grew up with was that you know, education is very important. We want you to pursue what's interesting to you. And they were obviously very supportive. I think that having that knowledge that they are there to support that process really helped me be able to make pivots along the way. And I think that's really paid off in, in the kinds of things I've been able to do in the, in the meantime. So you're about to go to Harvard Medical School. Up until this point with all of this entrepreneurship and innovation in the family and your experience with technology, had you dabbled up until this point? Had you tried to start a couple of side hustles and been involved in any other companies? Or were you pretty straight on the path of, I'm going to focus on becoming a physician for now? Along the way, I would say I dabbled with some friends, but the people I hung out with were always people that tend to be big thinkers, people who were trying to solve problems. We always had grandiose ideas of of companies we start or problems we'd focus on or technologies we want to try and create. But I think the burden of studying for med school just kind of didn't allow for that. So yeah, in general, I'd say that I was pretty much on the path to just focusing on medicine, even though conceptually there were these things that I think were always brewing in my mind. And looking back, maybe that's sort of where a lot of the interest in what I'm, I'm doing now was kind of pressure tested in a way. And I think that I really realize how energizing it is to think about these problems, work with people on solutions, and the prospect of being able to do something super meaningful, above and beyond the super meaningfulness of clinical medicine, I think was, uh, was really appealing to me. Even though nothing material came of that, I think it was an important process for me to go through in terms of just my the maturation of my interests. Well, I think it's interesting, and it's an area I'm trying to understand better, especially within healthcare, because a lot of people I talk to who are entrepreneurs or innovators, or even myself to some degree, it's something that it's just always been a part of you. Like you've always been doing it, like a side hustle here, an idea there, or the question a lot like, can you teach someone to be a surgeon or is it something you're born to do? Similarly with innovation, is it is it just a trait that people have or is it something that you can learn? Probably the answer lies somewhere in the middle, but it sounds like you have had this itch for some time. So now you're, you're going to Harvard Medical School on Longwood, right by where I did my fellowships, awesome area. How was that? Like, especially as a fellow person that came from engineering into medical school, how was medical school compared to what I imagine was pretty rigorous engineering education? I think my, my time at MIT was really formative. Clearly, there was a lot of great material that I was able to learn about. But I think the main, most durable takeaway from my experience there was more of an analytical approach to problem solving. When I was looking at medical schools, I, as I think you're kind of suggesting, I really wanted to also try as much as possible to continue to have that kind of experience throughout my medical training as well. The program I, I was in at Harvard Medical School was called the Health Sciences and Technologies Program, which is a collaboration between Harvard Medical School and MIT, actually, to provide just that, you know, obviously the medical training, but also provide a more engineering perspective, more mechanistic perspective on the various biological processes. So a lot of our classes were taught by MIT professors who were in the biomedical engineering department. We had a lot of exposure to various labs at MIT, and part of our program was to work in a lab and actually perform some biomedical research as, as part of our MD curriculum. So I was fortunate to be able to continue to have that kind of experience throughout my medical training as well. 
I think that really made the most sense for me based on background and based on the kinds of things I was interested in then and also the kinds of things I wanted to be working on in the future. And at that time, I decided to continue with my biomedical imaging interests. And I worked at the Martinos lab in Boston, which is an imaging center on MRI, functional MRI imaging. But, you know, I, I think I realized that there's obviously the intellectual interest in certain problems. I really enjoy, you know, signal processing and image processing. But the the prospect of sitting in a dark room and talking to a computer for the next however many years seemed a little bit, you know, maybe not perfect for me. So I gradually, through some of the clinical exposures in the second and third year, or the third and fourth years, started to gravitate away from radiology and more towards orthopedics, which, as you know, is obviously very engineering heavy, at least in principle, a lot of physics involved. So it, it that also really resonated with me, but also felt more in line with the kind of work I wanted to be doing, working with people. And, you know, as a former athlete too, it, it was just the patient population also seemed to be a, a good fit too. So that was kind of how I made the transition from radiology to where I am today, which is an orthopedic. I went through a very similar, like went through this radiology phase and then, you know, kind of wanted to see where the magic happened. You go in there and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> it's pretty dark in here. And then, uh, you know, did some shadowing and just immediately passed out. You know, I'm just like, I, I don't think I can cut it, but God bless all the radiologists out there because it is a very special skill set and, and very important, but definitely not for everybody. Totally, totally agree. Super, I think that some of the radiologists, I think radiologists that I've met have, have been some of the smartest doctors that I've, I've known. So really important work, but I'm glad somebody's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one thing that I think is really interesting. So you also got your MBA from HBS, right? I did, yeah. Actually, I got my MBA after I finished my residency in orthopedics. Okay. Yeah. Okay, wow. They, they didn't have the combined program when I was going through the MD program at that time, which I think is, is, is an awesome opportunity for the medical students now to be able to get that exposure. But so, so I finished my residency and then went back and got my MBA and then did my fellowship afterwards. And, and that was intentional. I knew I wanted to practice. I thought there are a lot of great things about the MBA experience that I really wanted to, to have. And I wanted to have it in the full MBA experience as opposed to a you know part-time program or an executive MBA program. Just for me personally, I felt like that would, that would be really helpful. So I wanted to make sure that I, I sandwiched that between two clinical experiences so I wasn't two years off of, of clinical medicine and then going into practice. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a great way to do it. And one of the questions I often get asked is, and, and I think things are changing, but you know, how do we as clinicians view people who are kind of doing things off the beaten path, like getting an MBA, where I think back in my day, it was seen as an indicator that you weren't fully dedicated to taking care of patients and to clinical medicine. And it was sometimes seen as almost a bad thing. And so, you know, people who were really interested in innovation or business that really wanted something like an MBA were worried it might actually just hurt them in the long run and would avoid it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an interesting question. It's funny, I think part of it will depend upon the philosophy of the program. You know, I remember talking to one of my surgery colleagues and he told me that his program chair has basically banned their residents from going to pursue MBAs during their two-year research block because so many of them are leaving clinical medicine and not coming back to the program. My program luckily was just had a different perspective. You know, I was not the first residents who pursue an MBA either during or after our residency. Our program director actually had an MBA as well. And I think he really encouraged our residents throughout the educational process to embrace the business aspects of medicine because they are so important, obviously, in, in contemporary practice. He made it a point to emphasize the importance of that and also encouraged us to 
pursue these quote unquote alternate paths. And so, you know, luckily I, I didn't have any major roadblocks along those lines. And I think there have been a number of residents who since my time in that program have followed suit. And, and I think ultimately it's a reflection of these perhaps previously very distinct disciplines have now become much more blurred in that clearly to be able to deliver high quality medicine now, you, you have to work within this business environment. And there are so many business opportunities within healthcare that having deep healthcare expertise is very valuable in, in the business ecosystem. So I just think it's a reflection of the evolution of the two fields and how they're very much intertwined now. And to be effective, I think, both as a program and also as a practitioner, it's probably really valuable to have the flexibility to pursue, you know, sort of incorporate as much of either as maybe appropriate for your level of interest and your goals. I think it's a good thing. I, I expect it will continue the enrollment with MD, MBA program at Harvard has, has been accelerating. And that also just shows the level of interest that people have in being able to break the two, the two worlds. I do think attitudes are changing. Hopefully this podcast is a little bit of part of that. And I think it's incredibly important. I think up until now, we've really seen the practice of medicine as this kind of very pure art form. And, you know, it's to be lauded. It's just like, hey, ignore everything else and just do what's best for the patient. And don't worry about money. Don't worry about business or, or innovation or anything. Just do right by the patient. And that's not a bad thing. But then, I mean, the classic example is the EMR lands in all of our laps with very few actual doctors involved. And in a the span of months, ruined everybody's lives, right? And as more and more of our systems, our policies, business practices, the technologies that we utilize, if we're not part of the conversation and we are like the key point of delivery for care for patients, then you know, these technologies and business models are not going to be set up as optimally as they could. So for people like you and, and other innovative leaders to have such a diverse background and to be so involved is, I think, is incredibly important and should be encouraged, I think, even more so than it is, because I think we're relying on people just to do this, you know, somewhat randomly. And I think in some cases, there's a lot of concern about it, because in certain highly entrepreneurial programs that people don't go on to practice and is that a bad thing, potentially, but maybe not in the long run, if you think about how they can scale the delivery of healthcare as well, and it's hard to model this stuff out. Yeah, imagine how awesome the EMR could be if doctors led the development of that solution. I don't even want to think it's going to make me start crying. <laughs> <laughs> that was a missed opportunity, I think. It's wild. It really has to be experienced to be believed in terms of the amount of times you have to click on something to get almost anything done. Oh, man. It's so hard to explain to somebody who doesn't live it every day. <laughs> That doesn't sound that frustrating. <laughs> that scene in office space where they're just like destroying the printer with baseball bats. I can just really relate to I've I've wanted to do that so many times when trying to put in some orders. <laughs> go go gangster on your nineteen eighties PC with EMR. Yeah. That's <laughs> triggering me right now. <laughs> So a question I also get on the MBA thing is now that you are pretty deeply involved in business and, and technology companies, and it's, it's so exciting, and I want to get to exactly what you're working on. Have you found the MBA to be helpful? Like, how does an MBA help you? And should people get it? Because a lot of people are able to do this without one, too. And so I get questions on whether it's worth pursuing and what does it actually enable you to do? Yeah, for me, the MBA was extremely helpful. I think there's part of it was just learning the actual material. You know, getting formal training on accounting and finance, strategy, operations. I mean, these are things that you certainly could learn on your own, but to have it presented to you in a structured format, in a setting where you're also not just learning from the book or the professor, you're learning from 
the case, and especially your peers who come from all these various different uh, backgrounds and have different experiences, all of that together for me made that experience really, really valuable. And of course, there's a lot of opportunity cost involved, taking two years off of your career, clearly an expensive undertaking, certainly important considerations. But for me, at the end of the day, I think it was definitely worth that trade-off. One of the things that I have always recognized by myself is that I'm not a natural networker. You know, I'm not, I think I'm certainly on the spectrum. I'm not like a gregarious extrovert. I certainly tend to be more introverted because networking doesn't come naturally. I think to be able to create opportunities, to be able to participate in these exciting experiences, there has to be some kind of substitute for that. And for me, at least early on, education-wise, a lot of it was through school. When I look back on how I was able to be fortunate enough to have this opportunity or be able to learn about this company, a lot of it came from the relationships that I built from school and, and later on in life through the various organizations or volunteering or even jobs that I've had. So that one of the, the longer standing benefits of business school for me was having this pretty large group of people that I met and learned next to for a couple of years, who then went off and did like all these other very diverse, amazing things. And along the way, they may come across something, some company, some need, some position where they reach out and say, oh, hey, that, this is something that I think Raymond would be great for. And, and that kind of just organically happens. So for me, I think in a lot of ways, it was really a good fit. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I remember in the very early days, I was trying to ask everyone, and I really had this entrepreneurial and innovative itch, and I just I didn't know how to get started. I was asking a friend of mine who was an entrepreneur and a CEO, and he's like, just start networking. Just meet one person, have them introduce you to two, have those two people introduce you to two people. You just never know one day that something's going to come up. There will be an opportunity, just like you described. So doing something that can supercharge that like an MBA, I can see could be very helpful. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly how I, I didn't necessarily go into it thinking that would be the case, but I think on the other end, that's exactly how it ended up being for me. It took my natural interests and was able to amplify it across multiple relationships that sort of came full circle later on. And I think it's been really a good learning experience for me to not just have that exposure to the material, but also be able to learn from my classmates in that way. So as you're working your way through residency and, and fellowship and then in practice, when did you start really getting involved in technology and innovation and business? Was there some sort of initial spark, some initial opportunity? Because, I mean, you're involved in so many things now. And I think there are many healthcare professionals and surgeons out there that would love to do what you're doing. How did you really get started in the early days? I think that the recognition that this was something that was interesting to me, like in a really structured way, didn't actually happen until business school. I guess this is one of the other benefits of going to business school for me was that it allowed me to explore these perhaps previously unrecognized interests that I had. I think that clearly looking back, there were a lot of things about my life where well, I can see how that may have sparked an interest in innovation or engineering or, or startups, but actually in a entrepreneurial class during business school, you can work through cases, sort of semi-live through the experiences of other entrepreneurs here, other entrepreneurs in your class talk about their experiences like actually see entrepreneurs talk to you about what they've done. I think a lot of that was really what was able to make me realize that this is something that I, I did want to participate in in the future. I wasn't necessarily clear on how that would happen or what I would do or who I would do it with. But I think that was the point where I realized that I did want to start 
adjusting my career path or at least in some way start planning towards how I could do those kinds of things in the future. And so after business school, after my fellowship, I started to work with small companies in an advisory role, both from a clinical perspective, but also from a, a business perspective to help work through some product development questions, work through some you know, commercialization questions. These are things that were always very interesting to me during business school. And you know, I really liked the, the ability to be able to bring it all together in a real world environment and actually helping the company overcome some of the challenges. And I think was a self-reinforcing experience. You know, I, I did it a few times. I really enjoyed it. More opportunities came up and it just really seemed like something that was a really good use of the kind of experience and skills I had from my education and so forth up until that point, but it was also a good way to harness my clinical expertise as I was building my practice and bring it together and thinking about problems in a different way, exercising a different part of my brain, if you will. Pulling all that together really created you know, a lot of, for me, a lot of professional satisfaction. I mean, you're really living the dream. I want to ask you a couple of questions from your perspective. What do you think makes a good advisor to a startup? What should healthcare professionals, surgeons, physicians, what should they be looking to bring to the table or what should they be working on so they could be useful to the companies that they're helping? I think first and foremost, the deep clinical expertise is the most valuable. And I think this is something that oftentimes is probably underrepresented in a lot of healthcare related startups. And I think that, you know, for somebody who's interested in, in doing this kind of work, I think it's also important to make sure that you are picking and choosing your opportunities such that they they fit your experience and interests really well. It's it's always hard to say no. <laughs> and this is coming from a guy who has spent many, many years, maybe not intentionally, but you know, creating optionality is something that I totally understand the value of. But your time is best spent in a way where you can actually deliver you know, the biggest impact and, and the highest value. So I would focus on opportunities that really fit your your skill set, your expertise, and your interests really well. For me, the things that always felt most rewarding were the opportunities where I understood the science or I could bring a, a clinical perspective that was really important to the, the product or the mission of the company, but also inject some sort of looking at marketing, commercialization, product development questions through a, a, a clinical lens. I'm not a business expert. You know, I, I'm not the marketing guru. You should find somebody else for that. But when it comes to the product and how you perhaps message it or position it or where you go to market first, to the extent that the clinical indications or the use cases or the physician interaction with the product, you know, those kinds of things are where I feel like I can very quickly help a company. That has been an important part of whatever success I've experienced. I think that part of it has been really important. I think that's really interesting, you know, once again, because so many people are trying to get into this, but there's not a lot of standardization out there or guidelines on, you know, how do you be useful? What should you be looking for? How do you even weigh the opportunities? And from an alternate viewpoint, from the startup's perspective, how should they go about selecting advisors? Because I see all too often, especially in the very early stage, especially for a non-clinical team, it's incredibly helpful to have the right healthcare professional like you on board, but you can end up in a situation where people are really good at marketing themselves and you can have someone who you've agreed to sort of pay out or, or give some options to that are just kind of sitting there and they're just a face on the website or people who are like overly active to the point of like sucking up time and not actually providing value. And it's just, you have to like keep them away from anything critical. <laughs> so it's like the opposite problem. So I don't know, like any advice for the startups out there on, on how to go about finding or assessing the advisors that they want to bring on board? 
you know, it's very tempting to bring on board very prominent figures in a space to the extent that they are truly thought leaders. I think that's valuable. But you know, I wonder about putting a picture and a name on your website of somebody that really isn't contributing much. I think in the, in the long run, I'm not sure that they are the best face for the company. They're not really intimately involved in some of the strategy or the decision-making. They aren't the best spokesperson for it because they don't really understand the business that well. So it's more important to find advisors who are ultimately just very thoughtful people, people who have real clinical experience, who have either exposure to high volume or have really thought about the science and have a lot of ideas about the problem itself. To your point, people who are either super dogmatic or perhaps too aggressive about their opinions may not be the best fit either. Bring on advisors, I think, should be no different than bringing on an employee. I think having a rigorous screening process, not just for skill set and expertise, but also cultural fit is really important. Because even if they have the best ideas, if they can't convey it to you in an effective way that resonates with your team, I'm not sure there's a lot of value in that. So I think thoughtfulness and cultural fit are probably the two biggest things. I'd want my advisors to be people who are going to have conversations with me and listen to my problem, ask questions first before providing a response. That's where you'll end up with you know truly unique solutions and create the kind of product that ultimately all organizations want. Very sage advice. It's a surprisingly tricky area, finding the right people and even having the conversation because, you know, if this is a very influential person and you start having a discussion and the talks fall through, you may have alienated someone that if you had never interacted with them in the first place, you might have been better off. It's just fraught with landmines. And I think even as a healthcare professional, it can be quite difficult to navigate. Luckily, our advisory board is incredible. We love everyone on there. <laughs> I was going to say, not a problem. That you yeah, have. we didn't have any problems. Everything's great. <laughs> We need to talk after this, by the way, Raymond. So anyways. But, but to your point, I think I think leveraging your existing advisors, starting with one or two people that you have a deep relationship with as you were maybe building the company or prototyping, I think talking with your advisors to identify other advisors is obviously a very good resource because they will certainly have a sense for, if not personally know, the more prominent KOLs or people who are always on the, the speaking circuit, and they can give you some guidance about who may or may not be a better bet. Because like you said, in some cases, it's probably better to have never touched that conversation than to create a situation where it may be more challenging for you to, to deal with the relationship in the future. I want to talk about some of your current work, which is really exciting. Medical director for Hinge Health, which is a very rapidly growing digital health company. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the company and some of the work that you're doing for them. Yeah, I, I'm super excited about what we're doing at Hinge Health. What makes it really remarkable to me is musculoskeletal pain is extremely common, as you know. Chances are you've experienced it yourself, and if not, chances are, unfortunately, that you will likely at some point. Despite how common it is, MSK pain is also deceptively challenging to address. There's a whole host of potential comorbidities, as well as lifestyle and behavioral factors that can affect both how people experience their pain, as well as their ability to both engage treatment and overcome these symptoms. But unfortunately, the healthcare system isn't very well designed nor equipped to deliver the necessary comprehensive evidence-based care consistently or conveniently. So many patients, unfortunately, don't get the right care at the right time. And suddenly, their six weeks of low back pain has become three years, and they're still suffering. Hinge Health has developed the world's first digital musculoskeletal clinic to bring a holistic approach to caring for these conditions. We pair patients with a complete care team 
including dedicated health coaches and physical therapists, as well as surgeons and physicians, nurse practitioners, and other specialists to not only treat the physical condition, but also the lifestyle and behavioral aspects that so often stand in the way of meaningful and durable improvement. We have programs to address the entire spectrum of MSK type injuries, acute injuries, chronic pain, the perisurgical period, as well as a wellness and uh, prevention program so that they are able to overcome their pain and not have to pursue or undergo more invasive, potentially not as effective treatment options because they weren't able to improve with these less invasive options of treatment. I mean, I, I wish I had something like that in residency. Part of the reason I went into pediatric orthopedics is I just could not take another conversation trying to talk someone out of getting a partial medial meniscectomy for degenerative knee, but it seemed to them that there were no other options. Something like this seems like a great solution. Yeah, I think part of the point is a lot of times patients, obviously, they're in pain. It's somewhat in desperation. They they are looking for a quick fix, whether it's a medication or a surgery, and they get started down a path of treatment, which is really not in their best interest, but because it may be recommended to them by their surgeon or because it seems like something that would fix the problem more quickly, they unfortunately aren't getting the best treatment possible. And so I think part of the goal is to make sure that patients understand the condition, understand what's what's most appropriate, get them on the best treatment possible as early as possible so that they get on that recovery path sooner and hopefully avoid any kind of misadventures like you're, you're kind of describing. It's uh it's a challenging problem. Everyone's got very unique conditions layer on top of all the different demands of life and the stresses of a pandemic and, and things that really just are obstacles to both seek appropriate care and actually engage that care. And that's one of the really impressive parts of what Penge has been able to do. I think one of the really exciting things about having you on the show here is we're trying to feature a lot of different kinds of innovators in healthcare, and there's so many different angles you can take. We've had people on the show who went to medical school and then became investors and never practiced. We have people who never went down the med school route but went through industry, or you have people who are in residency and leaving residency to pursue a business and entrepreneurship, or in my case, after residency. These are very hard decisions for people, and I think these people that have the itch know they have it, and they don't know what to do with it. There's still not really like a great support system around these kinds of things. So for people that are interested in business or innovation in medicine, from all the years of experience you have and doing it now, balancing clinical life and business life, all the different levers you can pull, do you have any advice or any learnings that you care to share with our listeners today? I think that it's tempting to pursue the big markets or the innovation buzzwords, but I would really encourage anyone who's interested in starting a company or working in an advisory capacity to pursue opportunities that are truly a good fit for both your interests and what you know a lot about. As clinicians, especially if you practice, you know a lot about something, whether that's your specific clinical domain, or as a part of that experience, you know a lot about coding or reimbursement or various pain points in the process. You may know a lot about clinical trials or patient safety, what have you. I think that's been the most important thing to me in thinking about the kinds of feedback that I get from companies that I work with. The best feedback comes from the the companies where there's the most overlap in clinical expertise and the mutual recognition of a problem. You experienced a problem in your practice or in, in whatever work you're doing, a company's trying to address that problem, you guys should talk. I think the other is this kind of dovetails back to that networking conversation. How important it is to have relationships within the space? It's important to co-locate yourself with the kinds of opportunities that you want 
things may be a little bit modified now in the age of COVID, but being in that ecosystem, being able to be part of various organizations like MIT Hacking Medicine or Mass Challenge, being able to be part of Next Gen Ventures, met a lot of very interesting people who don't necessarily provide direct opportunities, but it helps you mature your thinking, helps you be able to cross-pollinate different ideas across disciplines. So I would definitely encourage you to continue to engage people through these kinds of organizations to hear about a problem in an adjacent space, how they're solving it. I think that's just ongoing professional development for yourself that will be valuable at some point for you in the future. I think that's incredible advice. Try and stick with what you're good at and where you bring something to the table. Always build a network and stick to things you're passionate about. In my case, I pursued something that I'm intimately familiar with, and I definitely saw the benefit of that. Before we close out here, I'm curious in this COVID slash post-COVID environment, what are the technologies that you think are here to stay or that you're particularly excited about? I mean, I think there's just so many, and this is why healthcare is such a great, ripe place for innovation. There is so much complexity that creates all these opportunities for improvement. I think about a few different buckets. I think there's one bucket that I call data intelligence, which takes advantage of this large set of disparate data. Some of it's structured. Most of it probably isn't even captured consistently. But in that data, there is valuable information that's going to be able to help segment patients, help decision-making, and help improve outcomes. Within that, you can throw artificial intelligence, machine learning. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into being able to harness that data and make it surface insights and integrate that into the current workflow processes such that clinicians can put them into practice to drive better outcomes. I think there's a lot of value there. You know, if you're just looking in the MSK in the spine space, there are a lot of patients who on paper look very, very similar. They get the same surgery and there's this wide spectrum of outcomes. And we just don't understand why that is. The data intelligence-based solution just in that area alone could help millions of patients. Another bucket I would call is personalization. Some of this falls into what Hinge is doing, you know, providing convenient, personalized digital health solutions for MSK, but also genomics and gene therapy, personalized medicine. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we can do that is much more patient-focused than what we're doing right now in healthcare. Right now, the healthcare system is structured to make the physician's life easier. There's just not a lot of integration of care. The patient has to kind of accommodate to the way the healthcare system is set up. It's not really meant to make the patient's life easy or to serve the patient's specific goals or desires. So I think there's just a lot to be gained in personalizing medicine in that way. Another category I'm obviously interested in is technologies like robotics that can help surgeons deliver their current surgical techniques more effectively. We're at a point now, especially in orthopedics, where the implants and the systems are pretty mature, but how do we continue to improve the actual procedures for the patient's benefit? This is also where artificial or augmented reality and virtual reality play in. How do we help surgeons be better more quickly? I think of VR as the equivalent of concept of scale in business. When you're looking at your company, you're looking to how can we deploy this product across the board to drive adoption and do this at a point where we can do it for millions of customers. For surgeons, this is where something like VR could really be sort of a scaling feature. You know, one of the challenges of surgical training is that you got to get your reps in somewhere. In the absence of a really good surgical model, you're practicing on patients, which obviously is a tough balance between education and quality of care. So to be able to ramp up a surgeon's ability more quickly is great for business and great for surgeons too. So that's your free plug for OsoVR. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of room for improvement. 
Well, as as we wrap up here, it's tradition here at the Slice to ask you what your favorite pizza place is that you've ever had. I just got the connection between the pizza question and, and the name of the show. <laughs> a little slow on the uptake. It's subtle. It's subtle. Yeah, yeah. It's good. I like it. Just subtle enough. This is going to be probably a polarizing answer, but I don't know if I have one specific place, but I love Hawaiian pizza. We're going to have to shut off the comments section because of yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, right. In Italy, I've, I've had pizza there and it's amazing. I love a good slice of margarita, but you know, on Sundays, if I'm watching the game, I'm going to call Domino's for a Hawaiian pizza. I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. well at least we know you're being honest (laughs) well thank you so much dr huang for being on the show and sharing your story and thank you for the incredible work you're doing in healthcare technology and taking care of patients every day thank you justin it's been really great speaking with you and it's been a pleasure working with you as well thanks for the opportunity i really enjoyed that conversation with dr huang You know, what stuck out to me is just how relatable he is. Here is a surgeon who is involved in all kinds of technologies and business and has an MBA, but is also admittedly a little shy and has a hard time networking with people, but really pushed himself because of his commitment to innovation and impact to try new things and to expand his horizon. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us. And that lesson is... Hawaiian pizza actually is okay to eat. No, but seriously, the lesson I took away from that is to really make things better and to enact change. And also, I think to constantly keep your life interesting, you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I think seeing Dr. Huang not only stretch himself and hearing that story, but seeing how successful he's been with it. I think is a really good role model for all of us as we try and do things differently and maybe expose ourselves to a little more risk or a little more failure than typically we might be comfortable with. One last thing, we'd like to give Dr. Huang a very special congratulations because he is the proud father of a one-week-old baby. And what more commitment is there to innovation than jumping on some crazy innovation podcast with a pizza theme when you got a one-week-old in the background? Congratulations again, Dr. Huang. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice.